0: isn't it odd how darkness can play tricks on your imagination you guys ever notice that like you can walk out in your front yard in daylight and there's nothing hidden from you but the second you walk out after dark there's all kinds of imaginary things hiding in the shadows does that happen to anybody else Okay, good. Some of you are nodding your hands. If if you don't believe that happens, ask a deer hunter. I I, I can tell you that everything looks like a trophy buck 45 minutes before light. Like When you start to get that little gray in the morning, I don't know how many hours I've spent staring through a scope at a bush thinking it was a trophy buck just waiting for the light to get there. The imagination tends to... The darkness tends to play... The darkness tends to play jokes on your imagination, but usually what happens is when our imagination runs wild is it leads us to fear. I don't know if any of you remember, do you guys remember being young and being scared of the dark? It wasn't the darkness that was scary. It's what you couldn't see in the darkness. And, and in the daylight, there's nothing that's going to harm you. But something about it being dark, suddenly the darkness and the shadows are just full of things that are out to get you. When I was younger, my dad had a duplex. It was out in the country. It was kind of an odd place for a duplex. And because it was such a small place and there's a big family living there, there was a storage shed out back. And from time to time, after dark, my dad would ask me, said, would you go get something out of the storage shed? And I hated that. That was the worst thing in the world to me. And so I would stand on the back porch under the porch light and I would get my you know my courage up and I had this strategy of how I was going to survive the darkness. I don't know what was out there. It was only 50 feet to the shed, but in my mind, and my imagination, something was going to get me. And so I worked up my courage and I would take off sprinting through the backyard and I would run down there and I'd turn around that corner by the shed and they had a motion light. And my entire thought process is I've got to get that light to come on so nothing can get me. And so I'd come down there, come around that corner sliding and I would do some kind of a like, jumping jack thing out in the middle of it and if it didn't come on I'd immediately sprint back to the safety of the light under the porch. You guys ever do anything like that? just me. Okay, well anyway, that's what I did, and I'm alive, so it must have worked, okay? But we we, uh, we tend to find things to be scared of in the darkness, and when the darkness surrounds us, we're always kind of consumed by it. And it's kind of the same way in life when we walk through not physical shadows, but emotional and spiritual shadows the same way. That our imagination tends to take control of us, and it has the same effect on us when it comes to fear. We're in the 23rd Psalm, and we're looking at David and his reliance upon on the shepherd in the moments of darkness in his life, in the moments of the shadows. And what we know about David is David, in everything that he did, he lived a lifestyle of worship. And we're defining worship this way. It's up here on the screen. Worship is an act that exalts God and minimizes everything else. What our goal is through this series, The Shadow and the Shepherd, is it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. Our goal is to focus on you and I living a lifestyle of worship. A lifestyle of worship when we come here and we worship as a group. A lifestyle of worship when we go home and when we're with our families. A lifestyle of worship when we go to work and a lifestyle of worship in the darkness and the shadows. And, and to learn about this, we're learning from the Master. We're looking at this. It's a poem or a song from David and we're learning what he says it takes to focus on God, exalt Him in the shadows and minimize everything else. If you've got your Bible, Let's read Psalm 23. We're going to read the whole thing again. We're going to read it out loud. So I need you guys to do a little better than we did last week. Loud with me. It says, "...the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil." For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all of the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now last week we focused on the first three verses of the 23rd Psalm. And we focused on a couple of things. We focused number one on the fact that David says the Lord is my shepherd. Not the Lord is a shepherd. Not the Lord is the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. David tells us in this heart of worship that he has a deep emotional relational connection with the creator of the universe. And he then tells us what that does and how that affects him. My shepherd brings me peace and my shepherd brings me restoration. Last week we focused on all of the beautiful imagery that we had. He talks about this, this beautiful green meadow that he lies down in and he's full of peace and full of comfort beside a mountain stream or beside the still waters. And we just get this this peaceful imagery of this place where, where David would go to rest with God. But it all changes in verse 4. The imagery changes completely. We go from this imagery of a beautiful mountain stream in a meadow um, somewhere on top of a mountain, this beautiful peaceful place. We go to this dark and ominous shadowy dark valley. And we don't know much about it. He just calls it the valley of the shadow of death. But we can kind of figure out what that probably looks like, right? What would you describe the valley of the shadow of death? In my mind it's cold but not freezing. It's just like that 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 light fall chill. It's kind of dark there. There's there's this weird gray glow is all the light there is. All the trees are dead buzzards are circling around your head and you're just kind of trudging through this valley of the shadow of death. Actually, I think that's the exact imagery of every graveyard and every Halloween movie ever is kind of what I see in my mind as the valley of the shadow of death. And it's interesting that David goes from talking about this peaceful scenery and then he begins talking about this scary place. But David has this response. He says, even though I'm walking through this dark, ominous, shadowy place, I will fear no evil. In the scariest of moments, in the scariest places, David says, I will fear no evil. Our first take-home truth this morning is this, is that in worship, I do not fear the shadow. In worship, I do not fear the shadow that I walk through. That is not a natural reaction to shadows. So that's not a natural reaction to the scary. Usually we have fear. Let's, let's break down the imagery that, uh, that David uses here. David is talking about sometime in his life, maybe he's going through it then or maybe he's already going through it, where he's in a deep spiritual emotional valley. He's in a downtime. You guys ever have downtimes in your life? Like, what's wrong with you? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just feeling down. I've got something going on, something's bothering me, something's scaring me. David is describing that, he's using this imagery to describe that, and he describes it as a valley. See, a valley, if you want to go to the geographical term, is a low place lying between two mountains. That's as that's simple as you can get It's a low place lying between two mountains. So David sees this place that he's walking through, he sees it in this low place with mountains on either side, and that kind of sounds to me a little bit inescapable. Like, I would really like to get out of the valley of the shadow of death, but there's mountains mountains on my left and there's mountains on my right i'm i'm just trapped in this low place and feeling down in this spiritual emotional valley that i'm in and then he describes the shadow he calls it the shadow of death and, and we can kind of feel those words, the shadow of death. Shadows, they kind of like surround us, don't they? When you're in the darkness, even though you can't tangibly touch the darkness, you just feel like you're consumed by it. And see, a shadow is not even actually an object. A shadow is just when an object blocks the sun from you. But I think that most of us would rather deal with the the actual problem than we would the shadow. I believe that most of us, if you put a problem before us, we will be able to work through it. Did you know that you and I have uh, survived 100% of the crises we went through in our lives? There's no promising you're going to get through the one that you're going through this afternoon. But we've survived 100% of them to this point because when a problem is presented to us, when we have a hard time, when there is something that we have to deal with, we get through it. But if you put me in the shadow of a problem, when there's a giant looming problem and I know its presence is there, I will eat myself up with fear and anxiety and worry. We are better at dealing with the problems than we are the shadow of the problem. And David here talks about the shadow that he is in, that he's having to deal with just consuming him with fear. Now David doesn't tell us what this shadow is for him. It could be that he's getting older. We know this psalm was written towards the end of his life. Maybe maybe he's looking at the fact that his life is drawing to an end and he knows it is coming very close. Maybe he's looking back at some of the hardships he's had in his life. He, He lost a child. He disobeyed God. He he dealt with the king trying to murder him. He, He had a lot of emotional valleys. A lot of times that he was put in the shadows and he remembers that his imagination and his fear would be tempted to run wild. But listen to what David says. In my shadow, in my time of darkness, in my valley, I will fear no evil. It's not a natural reaction for a human being to say, I will fear I will fear, fear no evil. Now, I want to look before we continue to break this down. Let's look at the shift here in how David relates to God. Verses 1 through 3, David is talking about God. The Lord is my shepherd. He restores me. He leads me. He causes me. He, 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 he. he. But if you get to verse 4, in the moment of the shadow, suddenly David starts to relate and talk to God differently. He starts off with, he is my shepherd. But when you get to verse 4, and yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. David in this moment starts to begin to address God personally in this moment. You get this idea that as David reflects on whatever his shadow is, that he draws closer to God in the shadow. He draws closer to God in how he relates to God. He's no longer talking about, yeah, God is great. Now he's talking about, God, I need you. It's a personal relation and a personal desire to talk to him. Isn't it in the shadows of life when we draw the closest to God? And this is what David says. He says, my comfort comes from your presence. I have peace because you are with me when I was younger and I would do that thing where I'd sprint out to the shed and I'd try to get the light to come on I don't know how I survived I was confident that something out there was dangerous in the darkness and the shadows But that all changed when I walked out there with my dad. I could walk away from the light. I could walk into the darkness. I could walk in the woods. I could go anywhere when I was with my dad. And I wasn't scared of anything. And the only thing that changed is that I had his presence with me. Because, see, I was confident that there was something out in the darkness that was big and scary. But I had a belief that whatever was big and scary in the darkness, that my dad was bigger and stronger than what lay in the darkness. And that's what David is saying to God here, is that there is darkness. Darkness and there are shadows that surround me, but whatever I have in my life that is big and scary, God, you are bigger and you are stronger. And I find my comfort in the fact that you are with me. There's no doubt we're living in the presence of a shadow right now. There's a global pandemic going on. You can't turn on the news without hearing about it. Some of you are wishing that I'd preach on something else because church is like our refuge from this. There's the shadow of the political state of our country, political unrest. Everybody's mad about something. And many of us have our own personal shadows that we're not talking about. We have a a fear for a loved one who may not be feeling well. We have a medical condition that we need prayer for. We're walking through our own individual shadows. And we can find comfort in this, is that God is with us. Because see, if we have a heart of worship, it reminds us that there is the presence of a shadow but there is the presence of a shepherd who is greater than the shadow. And that is what we need to focus on and remember in the darkness and in the shadows. David goes on to explain why he comforts him. He says, I have comfort in your rod and in your staff. He said, your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me. Now a rod and a staff in Arkansas speak, that's sticks. (laughs) It's just a couple of sticks that that he found. And those two words in Hebrew, though, mean two completely different things. The rod was actually worn in the shepherd's belt. It wasn't, wasn't near as long. It was short enough that he could wear it, and it was like, I would call it a club. And this was a defensive weapon, is that when the shepherd was with the sheep, and the sheep were attacked by a predator, when a shadow came upon them, the shepherd would spring into action with this club, and he would beat back whatever the danger was. And David says, I find comfort in your ability and your desire to protect me. And then he says, I find comfort in your staff. I find comfort in the staff. And the staff is what we think of when we think of a shepherd. What does a shepherd always have? A big old long stick with a hook at the end of it. That's what we see when we see a shepherd. And, and the staff was a stick that was not used to be back predators. It was used to gently guide the sheep. If the sheep was going the wrong way, you take that, that staff up there and you guide them in the right direction. If a sheep's going the wrong way, you take that hook and you hook them and you pull them back in the right direction. So David says, yes, I have comfort in the fact that you can and will protect me. But David says, I also find comfort in in your guidance. I find comfort in how you guide me. Our next take-home truth is this. In worship, I follow boldly into the shadow. In worship, I follow boldly into the shadow. Let's stop and take a look at our location for just a second. We were walking through the shadow of the the valley of death. We're We're in the valley of death. The valley of the shadow of death, sorry. We're walking through this and the shepherd is with us. But on both ends of this concept of the shadow of the valley of death is this concept of guidance. If you look at verse three, David talks about his shepherd. He says, my shepherd guides me. He he leads me down the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And then at the end of it, immediately after he gets done talking about this, he says, I have comfort in your guidance as I go through the valley of the shadow of death. And that brings us to a question and an unescapable truth. If I am with the shepherd and he is guiding me, that I am also in the shadow. How did I get there? I was called there by my shepherd. I was called there by my shepherd. There's truth in the fact that sometimes God's path takes us into the shadow. There are times in your life where God's path for your life will pull you through a shadow. And for some of us, that's not what we signed up for with God. So Brian, I didn't do this Jesus thing expecting there to be rough times. There's a brand of Christianity out there that says follow Jesus and he's gonna make you rich and so we follow Jesus for prosperity. There's a brand of Christianity out there that says Jesus is like your little magical genie. When you need something, you rub the lamp and you make a wish and he gives it for you and you don't have to do anything else. But the truth of the scripture is that sometimes God will take us down dark paths. Sometimes God will lead us through the shadows and if you find yourself believing in a God that does anything but that, I would encourage you to seek the true God. There are many riches in following God. But I want to remind you that God never promised us that there wouldn't be shadows he just promised us he would be there with us in the shadows. See, in verse 3, the path that we're being led down, it tells us what the path is for. It says he leads us down the path of righteousness for his namesake. It doesn't say he leads us down the path for our prosperity's sake. It doesn't even say he leads us down paths for my happiness' sake. He leads us down the path of his glory. And sometimes God chooses to be glorified in the shadows. Sometimes he chooses to be glorified in the shadows. If you go back to Genesis 37, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 37, it starts the story of a young man named Joseph. And as I've practiced this this week, I keep saying David. So from now on, if I say David, I mean Joseph, okay? Joseph is who I'm talking about. Joseph was a young man who had many shadows in his life. Through no fault of his own, he was the favorite of his father and he had this beautiful coat and all of his brothers were so jealous of him that they took him and they threw him in a well. And there Joseph sat in the shadow of betrayal. But God had a plan for Joseph. And God had a path for Joseph. And Joseph was taken out of the well and he was sold into slavery, loaded up on a camel, on a caravan headed for Egypt. And there he was sold to a man named Potiphar who became his master. And Joseph sat in the shadow of slavery. But God had a plan for Joseph and his path. The Bible tells us that everything that he did, he was... um, he was, God, God blessed everything that he did. He rose to second in command over Potiphar's house. That means that he as a slave had the ability to spend money. He as a slave had the ability to eat and drink anything that he wanted in his master's house. God had a plan for Joseph and it worked out well until Potiphar's wife looked at him and said, I want him. And she tried to seduce him. When he refused and ran out, she grabbed his coat. And when Potiphar came home, she said, look at what he has done. He's come here and tried to seduce me. And here's proof. He left his clothes. And Potiphar, just completely upset, brokenhearted that his trusted Joseph would betray him in this way, he took Joseph and he threw him in jail. And now Joseph sits in the shadow of a prison for a crime he didn't commit. But God had a plan. In that prison cell, he met two servants of the king and Joseph had been um, blessed with the ability to interpret dreams. And he interpreted their dreams and one of them said, when I get back to the king, I promise you, I will tell the king what you can do and he will call you out and you'll be made great in his court because you have this power to interpret dreams. But he forgot Joseph. And so Joseph sat in the shadow of being forgotten for two years. But God had a plan for the shadows in Joseph's life. And after two years, the king had these horrible dreams sent by God, and he couldn't figure out where they were. And it was at that moment that servant said, I know a man who can interpret your dream for you. And so he pulled him out, and he takes him in, and he says, okay, here's my dream. He explains it to him, and Joseph says, that's easy. He said, God's telling you, you're about to have seven good years, and you're going to have seven bad years. You better prepare in the first seven for the second seven. And so Joseph rises to second in command over Egypt. And it may sound like God kept abandoning him. It may sound like God was using him, but literally... Listen to what the Bible says. Genesis 39, 2. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master the Egyptian. Genesis 39, 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. 39, 23. The keeper of the prison looked not at anything that was underhand because the Lord was with him, Joseph, that which he did, the Lord made prosper. And in this story, what happens? What happens? is he is able to pull all of his family to Egypt in a time when they may have starved to death. He's able to pull them there and take care of them, and this becomes this family becomes the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. And out of this nation grows great prophets like Ezekiel, like Isaiah and Jeremiah. It grows men that you and I have learned about all of our lives, and Moses and David. And out of this nation comes the Savior, God himself, coming in human form to die on a cross for yours and my sins. And if you look at the path of the Bible and you kind of bottlenecks around this story where he had to go through some shadows, he had to go through some shadows in order for God's plan to be fulfilled. So let me ask you a question. Is it possible in the shadow that you're going through? Is it possible in the shadows that we're all going through? Is it possible that God has a plan? I don't like that question. Let me rephrase it. In the shadow that you're going through, is it possible that God does not have a plan? I think it's impossible that God does not have a plan regardless of what you and I are walking through. God has a plan, and I know that because I've got a book sitting right here where the history of the end of the world is written. God has a plan for our shadows. God has a plan for what we're going through, and because we believe that God has a plan in the shadow, we believe that there is a purpose in the shadow. Did you know that what we go through right now the fear and the anxiety we feel all of the hardships that we're dealing with god's not just letting us go through it for no reason there's a plan I don't know what it is, I don't have all the answers, but I promise you there is our plan. Our last take-home truth is, in worship, I serve sacrificially in the shadow. In worship, I serve sacrificially in the shadow. Rodney Stark is a historian who wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, and he was presented with a historical sociological problem how did Christianity grow like it did? Now, we have the book of Acts and we understand the spiritual side of it, but he was looking at it from a purely historical standpoint. How did Christianity grow from 400 believers at the time of Jesus' death to the largest religion in Rome by 300 AD? In 300 years, how did Christianity go from 400 to the largest religion in Rome? How is that possible, especially considering the hardships that they went in? These Christians watched their leader brutally murdered on a cross. Joke's on them. He, he came back three days later. But that's not taken into account. The, these Christians were persecuted from the second Jesus was uh, executed. Christians were persecuted. None worse than the Emperor Nero. Some historians believe that Nero burnt down Rome just so he could blame the Christians for what happened. Nero would take people, the, take Christians, believers in Christ, and if they would not deny Christ, he would wrap them up in animal skins and he would throw them in with wild animals and he would watch as they were torn apart and he would laugh. Nero's plan for streetlights in the city of Rome was literally taking Christians and burning them not just every once in a while all night every night that was the streetlights in Rome and under these circumstances of persecution more and more people come to Christ Ronnie Stark says what on earth is it that draws people to a religion they know they're about to die in and he goes through uh, this book has several different things but would you be surprised to learn that just about all of the historical sociological factors that he brings in are Shadows and how Christians responded in the shadows. Chapter four of the book, chapter four of the book, focuses on one thing: pandemics. Did you know we're not in the first pandemic the world's ever seen? It's not the second, third, sixth, or tenth pandemic. It is nowhere close to the worst or the most deadly, nowhere even close to that. In 165 AD, a plague came through. The Antonine Plague came through Rome. Most historians looking back believe it was smallpox, and it killed between a quarter to a third of the Roman population. If a plague like that came into America today, it would kill over 100 million people. And 100 years later, there was another plague that came through. They're not sure what it is. They think it may have been Ebola, and they don't know the exact numbers, but they know at one point it was recorded 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome. And how Christians responded is what led to the growth of Christianity. Because see, in the pagan world, there was no concept of taking care of sick people. If your wife or your husband or your child or your mother or your brother comes home and they show the first symptom of the plague, you kick them out on the street and you lock the door and you leave them on the streets to die. That was how the pagan religion responded to this. Nobody took care of the dead. If a family was sick and they all died in the house, the bodies were just left there to rot in the house. Nobody would take care of it. Pagans would do nothing. The chief doctor of Rome fled the city in the middle of a pandemic. He said, I'm going to save myself. You guys can die. But Christians were a little bit of a light in a shadowy time. Because see, Christians refused to throw their family out because we're taught to love our families as part of who we are as believers in Christ, to love who God has put in our lives. And so when my family member comes home with the plague, I care for them to the bitter end or I nurse them back to health. But even worse, Christians would go to the houses of pagans, to people who had been abandoned. They would leave their, their healthy households and they would go to strangers and say, let me care for you. They would pick people off the streets and pull them into their own homes. When their families had cast them out, Christians would say, you can come to my house and I will nurse you back to health. And so many people lived through the pandemic because Christians were willing to be nurses at a time when nobody else would take care of them. Make no mistake, Christians died doing this, but many people lived because of the Christians. And sometime later, the Emperor Julian he was a, a paganist. He, he wanted to restore the Roman Empire to paganism. He said I've got to figure out how to get rid of these Christians and so he began to study Christians. He was a Bible scholar even though he didn't believe it. And this is some things that he wrote to his pagan priest and he basically said don't become Christian but we've got to start acting like Christians. We've got to start taking care of people because that's what the Christians do. We, we've got to start acting morally because that's what the Christians do. Listen to these words that he wrote to his own priest. He says the impious Gal- um, Galileans, that's what he called Christians, in addition to their own support ours and it is shameful that our poor should be wanting our aid. Why then do we think this is sufficient and do not observe how the kindness of Christians to strangers take care for the burial of their dead and the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause? And he ends with this. The recent Christian growth was caused by the moral character, even if pretend, and by benevolence towards strangers and the care for the graves of the dead. You see, in the shadows is where Christians shine the most. This is our moment when we walk into a world full of anger, full of fear, full of panic this is when we walk boldly because we have the comfort of the savior with us we have the comfort of the shepherd with us is in this moment people are going to be tempted to run in every direction to panic in every way have you seen that in the world the past year complete panic but we're supposed to be a light guiding people to god because we walk calmly through the shadow comforted by the presence of god I'm going to ask you a question, if I can ask the musicians to come, please. How have you responded over the past year to the problems that have come into your life? Maybe the big ones, like the shadow of coronavirus. Maybe the small ones, like something that's going on in your life. Have you responded in panic and fear? Or have you responded with the comfort of knowing the shepherd is with you and following his guidance? This is our time of response. And all I'm asking you to do today is just leave here different than you came in. Don't come to this church and walk out and live exactly the same. Take what we talk about and take what we learn. And if you need to pray about it, I'll pray with you. And if you just need to make a commitment to God, I'll pray with you to do that as well. But leave here differently today. Don't leave here with the same heart that you had.